0: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. My next guest will be Susan Perlman, and we will be discussing her book, Contesting France, Intelligence and U.S. Foreign Policy in the Early Cold War, published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. Susan Perlman is a professor of history and intelligence studies at the National Intelligence University. She has published widely on U.S. foreign relations and intelligence and is the recipient of the 2020 Robert Bellin Excellence in Teaching Award. Susan Perlman, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you very much, Stephen. It's my
0: pleasure to be here. Now, we always like to begin our interviews by asking our guests, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's the backstory behind writing this book?
1: Okay, thank you very much. Uh, You know what I found with most historians is that um, a lot of what we write is has a personal angle to it. And for me, that's certainly the case. Um, I started off my professional career as an intelligence officer. So I understood that community and that profession and was intensely interested in the history of U.S. intelligence. And then later, uh, when I went to graduate school, one of the most formative classes that I took was the history of U.S. foreign relations, which really piqued my interest in being a diplomatic historian. So um, uh, it was during that period that I read a lot about the missing dimension of uh, intelligence history within U.S. foreign relations. And so I began thinking about that as a potential project. And I also um, have some experience in France. I have an undergraduate degree in French and it's studied in Paris. And so this really is a confluence of those three streams of my prior experience in intelligence as a historian of diplomatic history in U.S. foreign relations. And then of course, uh, specializing in Franco-American relations
0: now what type of sources were you able to consult for this uh, book because this is a very interesting topic
1: yes indeed um so i consulted a lot of different archives in the united states and in france so in the united states you won't be surprised to hear nara uh, in college park was the source of much of the intelligence records that i consulted both oss records uh war department records later cia records um, also, the Library of Congress, and spent a, quite a bit of time at the president at the uh, Truman Presidential Library in Independence, Missouri, and also in the private papers of a number of the key characters. So uh, Jefferson Caffrey, who's the ambassador to France during this period, he has his papers down at University of Louisiana Lafayette, so spent some time down there. Um, so those are really important in getting the intelligence and uh, State Department, if you will, the the foreign policy side of things. But I also spent quite a bit of time in Paris in the Diplomatic Archives, the archives of the French Foreign Ministry at La Courneuve, and also um, in the French National Archives in Saint-Denis. And um, I bring that up in particular. It's it's absolutely essential for a work of diplomatic history, but especially for intelligence history, don't always have a view of the other side. So what did those who were on the receiving end or about whom perceptions were being cultivated through intelligence, what did they think? What was their ground truth? What was the story on the ground? So I felt that Getting the French perspective was especially important for
0: this one. Now, a major theme of this book, and you kind of mentioned it a little bit in your backstory, is that there's this relationship between intelligence and foreign policies, more specifically, American foreign policy. And could you kind of explain to some of our listeners, like, how does this dynamic work during this time, which is like the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War? How did those two play along uh, with each other in the American context? Uh
1: very good question. Um, and it's this is a particularly interesting period um, because this was a time in which the U.S. intelligence services were really professionalizing. It was a, a, a burgeoning community, if you will. Um, of course, U.S. intelligence had been around since the advent of the Republic. George Washington himself famously used intelligence. But this was really the first period in which uh, some of the bureaucracy was really starting to take shape, and you started to um, have the beginnings of a centralized intelligence organization. It wasn't quite there yet, and that would come after the war. But these were the the first kind of halting steps. So while this is going on with intelligence, at the same time you have diplomats who are on the ground in Paris. They're also on the ground in the reaches of France's empire, um, and they're operating in Washington in the State Department, and so. Um, There was really a blurred line, I would argue, between intelligence and diplomacy. Um, One of the uh, interesting things that I found through my research for this book is that you really had folks in the embassy in Paris who were, to some degree, acting as intelligence officers uh, beyond what we would normally expect of a diplomat. In other words, cultivating private sources writing into what would we would today consider to be intelligence reports. And because the intelligence community wasn't yet organized, much of what was coming out of the embassy in Paris, for example, often was recycled and made its way into intelligence reports that made their way to the president. So in the early days, um, in the immediate aftermath of the war, when the central intelligence group was created, um, after the OSS was dibanded, disbanded, excuse me, um, a lot of the dispatches that were coming out of the Paris embassy were directly reflected in the briefs that the daily briefs that the president was getting from the CIG. So there was really no distinct line between intelligence and diplomatic dispatches at the time. So it was really blurred. Um, but it's incredibly important to know that there were some of those in Paris in particular who thought that they were performing a crucial role of intelligence.
0: Now, part of this relationship is the contrast between the Uh, assessments of the OSS the Office of Strategic Services which is the direct precursor of the CIA the main intelligence agency of World War II and the State Department which is of course doing the diplomacy how did they differ in their assessments of France during this time period
1: so this is another interesting thing that I was uh, able to uncover in the course of researching this book and that is that um, as indicated by the title the intelligence on France and the perception of France was deeply contested, at least during this period where you had the OSS that was operating widely um, in France. And then you also had reporting that was coming from State Department officials or local officials on the ground. And that was also true for France's empire. Um, And what was particularly interesting about it is the Department of State. And I will have to delineate here between the Department of State in Washington, DC, and perhaps the embassy in Paris, and other State Department officials that might have been operating in other parts of France or in France's empire, um, because there were slightly different views as to what was going on inside France and its empire. But the State Department generally had the perception that France was weak, that it was obviously had uh, had a shocking collapse in 1940 in the face of the German onslaught. And that now in 1944 and 45, that it was poised to tip into communist revolution. And so there was a general concern Um, among State Department officials that France was um, particularly weak and ripe to be, um, was an opportunity, shall we say, for the French Communist Party and the Soviets. On the other hand, the OSS, which, um, and I think we'll talk about it at some point, had a different group of sources that informed their assessments and a different experience inside France, um, saw France as a bit more resilient that they had stood up, they had worked very closely with the resistance in France. So that was, that shaped their perception of what was going on inside France. And they realized that France was going to be a really important ally. If you think about it with the collapse of Germany on the continent, really France was the, was the um, better positioned uh, nation with the largest army even after um, the, you know, the defeat in the second world war it was really poised to be America's um, most important ally on the continent um, in the early Cold War. So um, one other thing I would say about the OSS that's particularly interesting is because the situation in France ultimately was built up as this almost hysterical fear of communism, those in the OSS were able to explain why communism was so appealing to the French public during this period. And some of it had to do with the communist rule and the resistance, but a lot of it had to do with um, the uh, lack of equity in the pre-war era and the idea that many of the pre-war elites who had run France prior to the collapse in 1940 were responsible uh, for what had happened. So there was a deep sense among OSS analysts in particular Um, that understood that revolution, as I noted in the book, was um, when communists talked about it, it was more of a vote-getting word and less about, you know, these hysterical um, fears of bloody insurrection. So there was a definite difference between what was coming out of the State Department on one hand and what was coming out of the OSS.
0: Now, I remember in the introduction, you almost said the State Department, they almost had a more conservative uh, view and that kind of tilted their their view of France, whereas the OSS, they were more liberal-minded. Could you kind of explain a little bit about this type of contrast and how this affected their assessments of France?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's always difficult to lump people into these different groups and put one label on them. But generally speaking, you're right, that the those in the State Department, and by that I mean Washington and in the embassy in Paris, were generally of a conservative outlook. They were deeply anti-communist. Um, and that their connections within France were typically within the more privileged classes, um, industrialists, business leaders, pre war politicians. And so that very much informed their outlook. Um, the OSS uh, analysts, generally, on the other hand, although the OSS itself was divided between kind of all ranges of ideological outlook, William Donovan, who led the OSS, was certainly not what we would consider today to be a liberal. In fact, he was a Republican. Um, but he, um, generally speaking, the analysts who were concerned about France um, had spent a lot of time in literary circles. Many of them had uh, French fluency, had spent a lot of time in pre-war Paris and interwar Paris. And so, and they were very well connected to French academics who explained to them um, the situation on the ground. And of course, the OSS was very closely tied into the resistance, which Um, did have a strong communist element, even if it also had Gaullists in there. So um, there was uh, quite a bit of difference. So the OSS had a slightly more what I would uh, call, if I had to label it, a liberal outlook, while the State Department seemed to be um, more wedded to a conservatism um, that was not looking to shake up uh, France in the aftermath of the Second World War.
0: Now, in the aftermath of D-Day, June 6, 1944, What was kind of the general perception of the Americans, like American soldiers and officials towards the French as they advanced through uh, France uh, during the period of June, July, and then later August of 1944.
1: Yes, so there were um, a a number of different appreciations of France, but generally speaking, and the French themselves even reported this um, in some of their diplomatic reporting, that uh, they were very worried that American GIs in particular seemed to have a negative view of France. Um, They viewed the French as apathetic. They weren't uh, necessarily appreciative of American sacrifices, or at least this was the perception. Um, And so there was uh, some disdain, if you will, among some of the Americans that were flowing into Paris in the aftermath of D-Day and through the liberation period. There were others, though, um, that appreciated what sacrifices had been made and certainly appreciated the role of the resistance in supporting the American invasion, ultimately, um, on D-Day and then later as it moved through France towards Germany um, for the final kind of uh, push So some of those were Dwight Eisenhower, for example, who, um, despite Franklin Roosevelt's absolute disdain for Charles de Gaulle, recognized that he was absolutely crucial to deal with. And Eisenhower also recognized that it was really important for the French to be able to um, at least have the appearance of liberating themselves. In other words, de Gaulle and Leclerc enter Paris in August of 1944 um, in advance of American troops. So there were those that realized that um, there had been a lot of sacrifices that had been made on the part of the French people, that they had suffered occupation, brutal occupation in some cases, um, and that they weren't necessarily anti-American. But there was a war weariness and there was also a fear of what the United States might do in the aftermath of liberation, because there had been some talk of an American um, occupation government, in an AMGOT. Um, and so the French were uh, divided in terms of what degree of influence Um, They wanted the United States to have in its affairs post-war, and sometimes that was reflected in those encounters between French civilians and U.S. military um, who were uh, flooding into Paris after August of 1944.
0: Now, we did touch upon this uh, earlier, but what type of political factions were there in France during this liberation period, and what were their agendas for France in the in the later stages of World War II and the immediate post-war period?
1: That's a really that's a really great question. It's one that's difficult to parse out, but one of the things that I have uh, been able to do through thinking about the different groupings of the factions is uh, to think about it this way. So you, for a time, so we're talking 1944 and 45 and the war is still going on, you really have a resistance faction Um, So that is the communists who are um, playing a large role in the resistance, and you also have Gaullists who politically are not aligned, but they are aligned under the banner of the resistance, understanding that the number one goal is to defeat the Germans um, and Nazism. And so for a time they were able to maneuver together um, to the benefit um, of the nation and the resistance. In opposition to that, you had um, some groups of pre-war elites that I've already referred to, some of whom were had been implicated as collaborationists, some of whom had vol- voted for full powers to Marshal Paten in, uh, in 1940, um, and some of whom generally just wanted to return to the, the status quo prior to the war in the aftermath of liberation. So there were a number of these different factions that were jockeying for um, influence. Some of those those pre war elites that I mentioned, some of them had actually escaped to the United States. And uh, while they may not have been collaborationists, they were very much whispering in the ear of American officials in Washington and suggesting that Charles de Gaulle might actually be a communist sympathizer. And wouldn't it be a better idea to have some of these other groups um, of which they were members. Um, be better positioned to take over um, control in post-war France. So these different factions were jockeying. And in the book, I refer to them, at least initially, um, as the French themselves uh, refer to them, which was uh, one resistance official had noted that there were two groups. There were Les Nationaux, who were those who were very much aligned with French national liberation and uh, French nationalism. And then there were a group that they almost derisively called Les Américains. so those who were very much aligned with the Americans and wanted more American influence in French affairs, most likely to bolster their chances of having a role in post-war France. So um, those are the initial factions. And then over time, um, as the story unfolds in 1946 and 1947, you really see start to see a different split in these groups. Into basically anti-communists and communists. And at that point, the Gaullists of the world are very much no longer aligned with the communists. They are firmly in the anti-communist camp. So there is a great splitting um, to some degree of the resistance. um, But that comes a little bit after.
0: Now, of course, one major faction that plays a role in this book is, of course, the French Communist Party. And how significant was the French Communist Party during World War II and especially its role in the resistance? You made a comment about that earlier. Can you go into more in depth about this and how this kind of prepares it for its role in the post-war period?
1: Absolutely. The French Communist Party played an absolutely critical role in the first world in the Second World War. Excuse me. But one one caveat on that is I'll say they played an important role after uh, the summer of 1941 when the Soviet Union was invaded uh, by Germany. And prior to that point, the line was that we're gonna stay out of this capitalist war that is unfolding. And it wasn't until the Soviet Union was invaded that the French Communist Party uh, pitched in and joined uh, the resistance. So uh, after that point, of course, they played a very large role in the resistance um, and they were able as a product of that role that they played um, to build to some degree a myth about their the importance of the role. So that's, and I say myth not denying the importance, but they had created um, a myth around the numbers of communists, for example, who had been killed by the Germans. And so they had talked about um, the party of the 75,000 that had been killed um, by the Germans. And of course, historians today dispute that number and say it's more like 15 or 16,000 that were killed by the Nazis, but that's no small number for sure. Um, But I bring all this up to show that the communists were really able to leverage this experience in the Second World War and the great sacrifices that they had made on behalf of of Free France to say that we deserve to have a role in France, a governing role in France after the war. The pre-war elites have been entirely discredited. We have formed the bulk of the resistance, and now we would expect that we would have a political role to play in governing France after 1945. So their participation in the resistance really does set them up To become uh, at at one time the most powerful political party in France in the aftermath of the war.
0: Yes, I believe that they were even one of the largest communist parties outside of the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc uh, during this time. Even before World War II, it was a major uh, centerpiece of of, uh, political influence. Uh, Am I correct?
1: Absolutely. The French Communist Party and its sister party, the Italian Communist Party, were the two largest in Europe. And so when U.S. officials became concerned about communism, it was to those two parties that they that they looked. Um, And, you know, in the case of France with Italy, Italy was a defeated power. France was an ally. Um, And so the idea that you had a potential bulwark against Soviet expansionism in France that re- that w- could be dominated by one of the most powerful communist parties in Western Europe was particularly troubling for U.S. officials. But yes, and especially in a multi-party system, you know, when you have a communist party that gets 28 percent of the votes, that's significant. And that meant uh, at one point that, you know, France could not be governed without them.
0: Now, another part of this uh, story that you talk about is this perception of communist influence in the french colonies and of course france's position as a colon- prior to world war ii it was the number two colonial power right after great britain but of course in the course of world war ii that status got you know really uh shaken up because of the vichy but also the occupation by the japanese of french Indochina, and of course a lot of the resistance movements but most famously in what is now vietnam with ho chi minh and the viet Minh? uh how did this perception of communist influence in the colonies affect uh u.s uh policies towards france
1: so this is particularly interesting as part of the the larger story here that um one of the reasons that i haven't confined this book to intelligence on what's going on inside of france is because the the intelligence that was streaming out of the empire um very much was related to what was going on inside the metropole. And so for a time uh, when U.S. officials were thinking about the French colonies, um, they weren't particularly worried about communism in 1944 and 1945, because we had uh, the OSS, for example, that was working very closely with the Viet Minh um, and Ho Chi Minh himself um, to try to um, provide intelligence, but also those networks that would help uh, downed American pilots escape uh, the clutches of the Japanese. And so we had a very close relationship with the Viet Minh during that period. And I will say, too, that in the aftermath of the Japanese coup in nineteen uh, in March of 1945, the United States found themselves in Indochina basically without an intelligence picture. There had been a number of other groups besides the Viet Minh that they had been able to engage, indigenous uh, French groups. But after the Japanese coup, all that was left was the Viet Minh. And so the United States had made the decision that they would very much leverage the expertise and the not local knowledge of the Viet Minh um, to, to defeat the Japanese. This was also a period when, you know, Franklin Roosevelt is still president. He is very much anti-colonial in his rhetoric and the United States has an anti-colonial tradition. And he firmly believed that France, had overplayed its hand in its empire, and then it no longer deserved to rule over the colonized. So he had made it very clear that he did not see a future for the French empire after the end of the second world war. Now, um, all of this changes over time. And there have been a number of excellent books um, about how the United States shifts from this anti-colonial posture to now in Vietnam in particular, Indochina, in Assuming the Burden. So that's Mark Atwood Lawrence's excellent book. But what I have tried to do here is look at the intelligence angle. So there was intelligence that was flowing inside the metropole To American officials from French sources about what was going on in the empire. And the same thing was happening in the empire. A different set of sources were cultivating American officials by giving intelligence to them. And so to some degree, intelligence also shaped American perceptions over the degree of communism in the colonies. And that perception changes over time. So if you think about some of the uh, military sources in French Indochina in the 1944, 45, 46, um, a number of the sources were French colonial officers who had a major stake in ensuring that there was a restoration of the empire. Many of them were Gaullists who believed that for France to return to great power status, they had to make sure that they kept a hold of French Indochina, which was really the jewel and the crown of their empire. And they were informing US officials. For a time, the OSS was working with the Viet Minh, and they were getting a different story. They were getting a story that was, we may be communist, but we are nationalists first, and we have fought for the allies, and we deserve to have our liberation. And so they played to the sympathies of American officials who, who strongly believed in that anti-colonial tradition. But over time, as events changed in the metropole, they were tied very closely to what was going on in the empire. And you, um, as I put it in the book, you begin to see the emergence of this Cold War consensus that I would argue is based in part on some of the intelligence that was flowing both out of the empire and the metropole.
0: Now, by uh, 1945, the the war in Europe is coming to its final phase. It ends in May of 1945. But in those uh, five months, what does the situation look like in France? Because, of course, they've been liberated. They had a chance to kind of consolidate the new liberation government, but of course, there's still the war going on. What's the situation looking like in France, uh, politically speaking?
1: Yes, yeah, so this is a period of great, um, it was a period of great concern at liberation. So in August of 1944, um, U.S. officials had heard and were worried about the prospects of a communist insurrection at that moment, at the moment of liberation, which didn't happen. Um, but de Gaulle was able to consolidate his control. Um, over the um, the future i guess leadership of france as the leader of the french provisional government and would ultimately get recognition by the united states albeit begrudgingly um as both the provisional government is the government of france and charles de gaulle is the head of that provisional government but you still have this jockeying because now uh, you have communists who are you know positioning themselves to, to to play a commanding role in government even if they're not leading they're they're not personally leading the government as de Gaulle would do that but there's a lot of jockeying that's going on and inside France this is all unfolding against the domestic backdrop of complete material um uh deprivation from the uh, effects of the of the war itself as it's now moving through France and on its way to Germany um and so you have um uh a bit of maneuvering to try to alleviate the suffering that the French were experiencing, because this is now, um, in, in late 1944 and early 1945, it's winter. Um, the battle of the bolts is, uh, is imminent and building. And so this is a period where everyone is trying to shore things up without having a communist insurrection that takes advantage of the unstable situation, both domestically and internationally.
0: Now, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he was opposed to the French Empire, as you explained. But, of course, he died in April 1945, and then Harry S. Truman uh, became president. How did that affect uh, France and American policies towards France? You did mention this a little bit uh, earlier in the interview, but could you get into more uh, depth about it in this part?
1: Sure. So, you know, as you said, Franklin Roosevelt was not... um, not particularly pro-French, he had made it known, his feelings about um, the French empire. He personally detested Charles de Gaulle. Um, The two of them did not see eye to eye, and I would argue to some degree perhaps because they shared some similar personality traits, but the relationship with the French was particularly difficult. Um, If you remember during the Second World War, de Gaulle was not automatically considered the leader of Free France. The Americans had preferred a number of others and at one point had backed another general Henri Giraud against uh, de Gaulle. But ultimately, um, through all the maneuvering and in the, in the warriors, de Gaulle emerges as the unquestioned leader of the resistance and later the, the French government. But this was something that uh, Roosevelt was very begrudging, very begrudgingly acknowledged over time. Um, so, he had to some degree um, a very personal distaste for de Gaulle and a sense that France was done as a great power. When he leaves the scene, um, Force Harry Truman, who had um, only been in office himself for just a few short months um, and is not particularly well versed in international affairs, does not have the same almost pathological. Uh, dislike for for Charles de Gaulle and for France, although he has some of his own experiences in the First World War and he doesn't particularly um, understand or appreciate French society and culture, but he didn't bring with him some of the, the almost pathological resistance to de Gaulle and to France. Um, and so there was no talk with Harry Truman of an occupation government. There was n- none of that. But I will say that Harry Truman, uh, with his um, turn to the presidency, he brought with him a number of um, anti-communists and hardliners in his entourage that gained um, more clout with the disappearance of Roosevelt from the scene. So the idea that the Soviets could be accommodated, that um, Roosevelt had believed that he could deal with Stalin. Um, So there were um, a number of anti-communists in Truman's entourage that really shaped his policies. Um, As I mentioned before, the views of the empire would change pretty dramatically over time. And it wasn't long after Harry Truman was in uh, office that the United States began to shift its views on support for France uh, retaining or or regaining or restoring its uh, empire in Indochina. But the one other thing that I would want to mention is that um, the other interesting piece here is the intelligence piece, which is Roosevelt had not really made any mention yet of whether he would keep the OSS in the aftermath of the Second World War, but he certainly seemed to appreciate the need for a centralized intelligence agency in peacetime. Harry Truman comes into office and is deeply suspicious of intelligence. And of course, the people who were informing him, to include Admiral William Leahy as his chief of staff, were military officers, and they had not had a good relationship with Donovan's OSS. And so in September of 1945, literally just a few months after Truman comes into office, he makes the decision to disband the OSS, which uh, I would argue takes that um, contrary strain of of the narrative that was uh, what was going on in France. And to some degree it's marginalized as the different functions of the OSS are farmed out to the State Department and the War Department. So Truman's decision um, about the OSS was absolutely critical in shaping perceptions of France down the road so um a number of different important uh parts of that sh- of that shift from roosevelt to truman
0: Now, you mentioned Jefferson Caffrey uh, uh, earlier in the interview. Uh, Who was he and what is his significance to this story?
1: So Jefferson Caffrey, um, by 1944, when he becomes the U.S. representative to the French provisional government, this is before it's uh, officially restored as uh, an ambassadorship to France, and he would ultimately become the U.S. ambassador to France during this period. Jefferson Caffrey had been a longtime diplomat for 30 plus years and his previous tour had been um, as the ambassador to Brazil for the past seven years. He was a Roman Catholic convert who had grown up um, in Louisiana, been a former chemistry teacher and track coach before he joined the Foreign Service, but here he was uh, now in France, and he's a particularly important character in this book because it was his leadership of the embassy that was so important, and it was much of the information that was coming out of Uh, the cultivation of his sources from the embassy and the people who worked for him, that was feeding a particular narrative of what was going on in France. And and in fact, the narrative that suggested that France was weak and that the communists were directed by the Soviet Union, had a lot of power and that France was on the cusp of either a civil war or a revolution or a coup. Um, And I just mentioned as an aside, one of the people that Caffrey uh, employed in the embassy was a man named Norris Chipman who believed that he had an intelligence role to play um, through some connections to a secretive division inside the State Department. So he was writing a number of the dispatches that Caffrey was forwarding to the State Department in Washington that really raised the alarm about communist intrigue in France. And so Caffrey's embassy was particularly important for shaping uh, at least one side of the intelligence narrative that was coming out of Paris.
0: So now we get to the end of World War II, at least in Europe, in May of 1945. So now the idea that we all have to stay united to defeat the Germans, that's gone. So how does that affect uh, French politics in this period, like the later half of 1945?
1: So in the in the latter half of 1945, um this jockeying that I had mentioned before absolutely continues. And it's a question of what do, what role the French communists are going to play in the government. And they're making a, a very strong play to have one of the big ministries. So if you think about foreign affairs, or the foreign ministry would be one of the big ones. Um, there were a number of others. And de Gaulle himself was pretty adamant that that would not happen. And so while he realized ultimately that they would have to have a role, you would have to have min, uh, communist ministers in the government, he was determined to make sure that they were in positions where they could not impact some of the major affairs of the state. So that jockeying continued. Um, and Maurice Torres, who was the leader of the French Communist Party, um, was um, very Free In his criticism of de Gaulle for not allowing the communists to assume more of a role in that government, but that um, that jockeying continues into 1945 as it's, it's apparent that um, obviously Germany is now defeated the war in Japan looms so the empire becomes more important, and then as the war wraps up it's really, um, you know. What role is the Communist Party going to be allowed to play at the same time that there is this kind of uh, gazing towards the Soviet Union and worrying about um what the Soviets are doing in Eastern Europe and perhaps the influence that impact that that might have on um on France and French communism?
0: Yeah, that uh, really uh, segues ways into my next question. What was the relationship between the Soviet Union, the major communist power at this time? and france and de gaulle's government especially in 1944 1945 because of course they were both officially part of the alliance against nazi germany so they had to at least collaborate on some level especially also with the influence of the french communists that you mentioned but on a diplomatic level what was the relationship between the two
1: this is a this is a very good question because france and the soviet union or even prior to the soviet union france and russia had historically had um diplomatic uh, relationships and had um, alliances, if you will. And remember, they had been on the same side in the First World War against the the Germans. And so they had a number of, and of course, part of the grand alliance, if you will. Um, France maybe not considered the, a member of the big three, but of course the Soviets had been holding down the Eastern Front in the Second World War. Um, and the French were fighting at least the resistance on the, on behalf of the allies. So they were certainly linked up there. Charles de Gaulle, it's, it's interesting because um, with all the wrangling that I had mentioned with U.S. officials over the future of France um, and the dismissive attitude that many U.S. officials had towards not just France, but particularly towards de Gaulle himself, made him think that the French needed to be very careful to position themselves perhaps as a as what would later be known as a third way or a third force between the West and between the Soviet Union. And so to do that, de Gaulle looked for support from Stalin um, and the French and the Soviets concluded a friendship treaty in December of 1944. Um, But I will say it wasn't very long before de Gaulle was, shall we say, um, disabused of the notion that perhaps a a Franco-Soviet alliance was going to bring them more leverage. He was um, disappointed in the relationship because Stalin did not support the French um, effort on on certain key issues about occupation zones and about any number of other things, um, invitations to Yalta, for example, um, that de Gaulle had hoped he would be able to, to use the Soviets for. And so the relationship began to sour um, over time. And it was, I think it became apparent to de Gaulle w- pretty shortly thereafter that France while it tried to maintain its clear independence and its role on the continent, that it would have to throw in its lot uh, with the United States and firmly into what de Gaulle would call a Western bloc.
0: Now, uh, when we get to the end of World War II, we start getting into what we commonly call the beginning of the Cold War. And did this uh, shape uh, or change American perceptions of France? Or Because you also mentioned this earlier, that France, the, the, the Americans, they have to look towards the soviet threat but then one of their major allies in europe france is also very susceptible to a uh, communist insurrection in their view or at least communist influence because they have almost a third of the the support of the populace as you said 28 percent, almost 30 Mm percent so how did the the beginning of the cold war uh, shape american perceptions of france
1: Another great question. I, I would push back a little bit and suggest that the Cold War was already underway. Um, In in part, uh, I mean, we could go all day in terms of, you know, where's the turning point for the United States and the Soviets, but in France in particular, um, especially by by 1944, is that jockeying that I've alluded to has already happened and, and fears about communism. But I will say the period that you're talking about, so 1946 and 1947, as it's become apparent that... There is a real movement into what we would consider the two camps that there was an increasingly a belief that while the French Communist Party might be talking about a French path to socialism and may have some expressions of independence from the Soviet Union um, in the United States, there was a growing consensus. inaccurately, I would argue, but that the French Communist Party was directed, very closely directed by the Soviet Union. And so no longer was it seen as um, uh, a party that might be able to um, perhaps moderate the Soviet Union, would perhaps play a constructive role in decolonization, but that it was a now believed to be a party that was acting um, as a, you know, a, a frontline, if you will, for, potential Soviet advances into Western Europe. So that was one of the things that we see really shift in time and part of that, I would argue has to do with this narrative that now disappears with the disappearance of the OSS that explains kind of the appeal of communism and the fact that it's not, there's a unique French form of communism and that there are differences between the Soviets and the French but at least in terms of U.S. officialdom, there was a strong belief that anything that the French communists did had to be directed by the Soviet Union. Um, And I would argue that's entirely untrue for this period. And so there was a lost opportunity to some degree to split the PCF from the Soviets, but but that was, of course, not to be.
0: Now, a major event that occurs in French politics is the resignation of de Gaulle in 1946. And What's kind of the political impact of this in France? And then how does this shape uh, American perceptions of France at this time?
1: So this is a really interesting uh, decision that de Gaulle makes in January of 1946. You could argue that he had been thinking about it for some time, but at least ostensibly, his reason for resigning was that he thought that the communists were maneuvering to ouster him um, and that he decried the the influence of political factions and believed that France needed to be, at least France, French political figures needed to be above that. Um, Georges Bideau, who was the foreign minister of France during the period, um, would kind of, in a funny way, would remark that you know it was the, kind of the worst day of his life. He couldn't believe that de Gaulle had resigned, but it was also the best day of his life because he found de Gaulle to be difficult to work with as well. Um, and so what it did is it opened a door for the communists, but it also um, led to a succession of weak French governments of the of the socialist and non-communist left um, and growing influence of the communist party that would culminate later in the year um, in the elections of 1946. So um, if we thought jockeying was bad before January of 1946 with de Gaulle at the helm, it now becomes... Um, a pretty serious affair. And while the United States, there were many officials who remembered their terrible relationship with Charles de Gaulle and weren't so sad to see him go, were also a little bit worried about that his departure might might provide an opening for the French communists to to step in and assume even more of a of a role in French society.
0: Now, much of this discussion so far, we've talked about what was the perception of communist influence in France and even Soviet influence on the French communists. Now, what is kind of the contrast between, as much as we can tell from the sources, mm-hmm. what is the contrast between the perception and the reality? Was was the French communists like about ready to, was there any type of evidence to show that the French communists were trying to oust de Gaulle or take the government by force or start a civil war at this time, like 1944, 45, 46? Is there any evidence to kind of support this, or is this more perception versus reality
1: i would argue that it was largely perception versus reality at least during this period but there were reasons that people believed that it was going on which were a a series of um intelligence reports if you will that talked about um, arms drops weapons communist weapons drops uh hidden arms caches Soviet support for the reconstitution of in- international brigades in Southern France that lent to this era of conspiracy. And of course, there was a uh, communist doctrine itself and a number of the reporters inside the embassy would point to the you know, manifestos of the 1920s as, as a suggestion that the French Communist Party was just returning to, um, and the Soviets were returning to this idea of worldwide revolution. And of course the French Communist Party would be the vanguard of that effort. What we know, um, what I would argue, um, and I think is pretty clear um, from what the French were internally saying and from what was revealed later with the minutes of the um, Communist Information Bureau. um, Is that the French Communist Party had a very close affiliation with the Soviet, uh, with the Soviets, but was not directed by the Soviets at this time. I say this because um, regardless of what French officials might have been saying to the United States to get um, a loan package or aid or more coal in the winter or um, the United States to to support their position on on Germany um, and the German settlement, internally, they were talking about the French Communist Party as political adversaries and not necessarily as those who were positioning themselves to foment a coup against against the regime. Most of that kind of talk came through in the discussions with American officials. So they had realized, and we have records of of French officials noting that the best way to get American attention and support is to bring up the communist threat. Now, if you fast forward to 1947, um, when the Communist Information Bureau meets in its inaugural meeting in Poland, um, many people at the time took that to be a sign that Uh, The the Communist International of the 1930s was was reconstituting itself, and it was going to be uh, another attempt for the Soviets to spread worldwide revolution. But by looking at the minutes of that meeting, You can see exactly what was going on. And it was that the Soviets were ill-informed. They didn't know what was going on in France. And in fact, they criticized the French for keeping them in the dark and for hewing more closely to French parliamentary tactics and and legalism, rather than engaging in other other tactics. So what's revealed through those minutes, and we can talk about those um, more, um, if you'd like, about the common form, was that the Soviets were not Directing the French, and in fact, were a little put off that they did not have more insight into what was going on with one of the largest parties in Western Europe.
0: Uh, Yeah. Uh, What was the common form and all that? You did mention that there was the common term, the Communist International, uh, that was run from Moscow, but then that got dissolved in 1943. And also, just the experience of the war, a lot of these French communist groups outside of the Soviet Union started to gain a little bit more uh, independence from direct control from uh, Moscow. I know I've done research about this with Mao and his uh, work and how that affected the Sino-Soviet alliance later on. But uh, yeah, uh, could you talk uh, about that with the common form and how that affected the French communists? Sure.
1: So uh, to your point, the the communist international, which was always put forward as this you know harbinger of worldwide revolution, um, had been dissolved in 1943 um, as a Soviet attempt did not want to alarm the allies, the other members of the Grand Alliance. And um, so, you know, when there was discussion in 1947 about resurrecting um, what they were calling a communist information bureau, there was this automatically this reflexive fear on the part of many Western officials that here we have the communist international um, resurrected. But the Soviets, saw the common form, at least initially, as perhaps a way to coordinate between the parties. They thought that, you know, maybe there should be a journal um, that um, would provide material for the Communists to share with each other, uh, the different Communist party. Um, but what's particularly interesting on the on the French side of the House, if I could go back for just just a second, is that during the course of the war, um, you had a lot of people who were joining the French Communist Party because of their role in the resistance. And these were not doctrinaire communists, but people who recognized the role that they were playing in the resistance. And so the party itself, in terms of hardcore communists, does change with the with the Second World War. And so that, to some degree, uh, accounts for a, an influx of people into the party. But it's they're not hardcore insurrectionist communists of the 1930s. So this change has already happened inside of France, and you have some expressions of, you know, uh, by the French Communist Party of being willing to work inside the resistance with de Gaulle, inside the French government with de Gaulle. So there really is the idea here that they're um, playing along in, in parliamentary democracy at the time. Um, but uh, the, the common form, but if I could go back to that, um, the, so the French Communist Party, had been expelled from the French government in May of 1947. And that came to the Soviets as a surprise. And so you can imagine that now we're really in the throes of the Cold War. This is right in the aftermath of the uh, Truman Doctrine speech. And of course the Marshall Plan would come um, in the summer. And so there was a shift in you have this seminal moment in French political history with the expulsion of the communists, then you have the announcement of the Marshall Plan. And so uh, the Soviets are pretty alarmed with what's going on in Western Europe in particular. And so they call this inaugural meeting of the common form um, to figure out how to get a better grip on what the other parties are doing and to coordinate. And it's basically a meeting of the Eastern European parties, And then two other parties, the PCI, the uh, Italian Communist Party, and the PCF, the French Communist Party. And at the inaugural conference, the French Communist Party and the Italians are criticized um, for this excessive legalism, for being willing to collaborate with other elements of, of the French government, and also for their failure to recognize American imperial designs on France. What's interesting about this is many have taken this to mean that this is the kind of self-criticism of Maurice Torres that would come later, and the French Communist Party is now going to hew towards a much closer line with the Soviet Union. When in fact, if you look at the minutes of that meeting, um, Gomolka, the Polish leader says, no one is recommending putschism. So no one is telling you to launch a coup against the government, but we are telling you that you should get back into government <laughs> um, so that you can wield your power through the, um, through the through the legal means but they had criticized the French communists over their willingness to cooperate with other parts of the government. They had criticized the French communists for not taking a stronger stand on the empire. So all of this belies the claims that the French communist party were being closely directed by the Soviet Union in 1944, 45 and 46. Now I would argue that there is a shift and there is a Stalinist turn in the French communist party after the period of this book in 1948. But this is a a period, which is particularly important because that is not inevitable yet.
0: Yes, I remember reading in reading the book, you call the French Communist Party almost a unique French institution because, yeah, they're communists. And so, of course, they have solidarity with the Soviet Union, but they're also in their own way, almost like French patriots in their own definition of that. And it's kind of interesting because that perception is now coming more to light in Cold War scholarship that. The different communist groups, they uh, they're aligned with the Soviet Union, at least for a while. And then but they're also at the same time, they're kind of pursuing their own agendas and they're trying to use the Soviets to their advantage when it suits them. So there's a little bit more of this nuance rather than they're just mere pawns of the Soviets, as the perception is for the Americans throughout this book.
1: Yes, indeed. And I think, you know, I think. Some of the excellent scholarship, you know, the communist monolith, the idea that, you know, any communist party anywhere is directed by the Soviet Union, we know that that was not the case with the French Communist Party during this period. And we certainly know that it wasn't the case with even the, um, the uh, communist parties and the nationalist parties in Vietnam, for example, not only were they not particularly aligned with the PCF. Before 1947, because the PCF, the French Communist Party had been kind of quiet on the empire in the hopes of keeping the peace within the government. But the Soviets themselves had not engaged the likes of Ho Chi Minh prior to 1947. It had basically left him on his own to try to wage this um, nationalist war uh, um, against the French. So the idea that everything was emanating from Moscow is really disrupted when you dig deep and look at... um, the the actual relationships between the parties.
0: Yeah, I got back to my uh, research on uh, Mao, uh, the relationship between the Soviets and the Chinese communists. I know during the war, I read the memoirs of Vasily Chuikov. He's mostly known as the commander at Stalingrad. But prior to that, he was a military advisor in China. And in his memoirs, he's constantly talking about his frustrations of trying to work with Mao and how in some ways Mao's trying to Wait out the war because so because the Germans have already invaded. So in some ways, Mao's like, oh okay, well this isn't my problem. I'll just wait it out and then I'll just continue my war with Chiang Kai Shek. And in some ways, Shuikov and also Stalin, they're trying to get no, Mao, we need you to fight the Japanese so they won't attack us. And Stalin kind of sends this indirect message: well, if I go down, you're going down with me. So, but it just kind of proves like how in some ways the different communists are pursuing their own agendas. And they're not just mere pawns of the Soviets. Indeed. Now, and we'll get back to the war in Indochina, but uh, there was also the general election of November 10th, 1946. So this is after de Gaulle resigns that we just talked about a few minutes ago. But what was the general impact of that on French politics?
1: So that was probably one of the most consequential elections of, of this period, um, because de Gaulle is no longer on the scene. And to some degree, he's privately, well, not so privately, railing against a proposed constitution um, because we know that de Gaulle wants to have a stronger uh, French presidency, if you will, and that there would be less power that would be given to to the legislature as we would conceive of it. Um, And those attacks had dramatically weakened the MRP, which was one of the um, more moderate parties in French politics at the time. So what happens in the November elections with this maneuvering of de Gaulle in the background, who's no longer in government, is that the French communist party emerges as the largest party. And it's apparent at that point that France cannot be ruled without them. At the same time, there's also resurgence on the right. So you have uh, resurgence of of some parties on the far right And in the moderate center, there is a dramatic decline in votes. So what you have is a pretty intense polarization of the French political landscape um, between the forces of the right and the forces of the communist party. And they're no longer um, the center and the center right is no longer unified by, you know, a figure of de Gaulle who had placed himself above political factions and parties. Now he's um, advocating behind the scenes and later would create his own political party, the rally for the French people. Um, which was a rightist party. Um and much like uh, you know, if you think about the French French elections today and, and Emmanuel Macron, he had his own En Marche, which was a different kind of political, political formation. So de Gaulle was really one of the first in the in the in this period to create a new kind of political configuration, but all meant to challenge the French Communist Party. But it was in the aftermath of this election that, that happened. But the French communists in November 1946 looks like legally they're poised. Um, to take control of the government
0: is this uh what kind of contributes to this wide perception that france is on the verge of a civil war throughout 1947 that you uh talk about in the book
1: it does so this is the this is the fall before um the cold war really deepens in europe so it's it's another winter of uh deprivation for the French people. There are coal shortages, they're still trying to work out a German settlement. And what what would the Germans have to pay? What would would, the, would France be able to get coal uh from Germany? So there are these just intense um uh sense of of doom, if you will, that's kind of lingering in that winter of 1946 and into 1947. And then in 1947, some of those seminal events that I had mentioned before, the Truman Doctrine speech, the expulsion of the communists from the government, um, the Marshall Plan, and then later the common form are all happening. Those are an international and domestic backdrop. They're happening against this material scarcity Um, And they're also happening at the same time that those reports that I mentioned before, the more hysterical ones that suggest that there are all of these conspiracies that are unfolding inside of France with the weapons caches that are found. They're automatically assumed to belong to communists. There are these um, paradrops of weapons that are seen at night over the French countryside and are assumed to be Soviet planes that are dropping weapons to French communists. There are conglomerations of people seen milling about in southern France that are are believed to be either poised to go into Spain or poised to collect themselves and send, uh, send volunteers into Greece, or perhaps to prepare the ground for a Soviet invasion later of Western Europe. So there's this general um, conspiracy and hysteria that plays out against the backdrop of these other seminal moments, which seem to be signaling that the United States and the Soviet Union are very firmly moving into two camps um, and that Europe, it's going to have to align one way um, or the other.
0: Now, you mentioned the Marshall Plan a few times uh, throughout the interview. What was the Marshall Plan and what was its impact on France?
1: So the Marshall Plan or the European Recovery Program was um, really important aid program uh, that is very firmly rooted in a sense of Cold War. So the Truman Doctrine speech in March um, indicates the United States of course will aid um, uh, free peoples everywhere, and uh, later the the Marshall Plan speech at Harvard indicates the United States will be providing um, assistance to to some degree to address the material deprivation that I'd already the material scarcity that I'd already talked about because the belief was is that hungry people. Um, people who don't have clothes, who don't have heat, are people who are more likely to be um, prone to accept um, communist influence in their lives. And so the Marshall Plan was a critical piece of American Cold War um, doctrine and containment. Um, and of course, France was particularly important to the Marshall Plan for the very reason that it was going to be the linchpin of any American recovery efforts in Europe, and um, and at the same time, it was one of those nations that had suffered most um, under occupation. And so that was there was a real sense of urgency to needing that kind of aid. The other thing that's interesting about the Marshall Plan is it's announced in the summer of 1947, but it doesn't, the aid doesn't start flowing until later. And so in the in the fall of 1947, you have this common form meeting, and everybody says, here we go, it's the Communist International, the French Communist Party, or the vanguard of Soviet Inroads into Western Europe, and then the year culminates in these uh, strikes that many see as an attempt to unseat uh, the government. And so it's under within that backdrop that French and American officials are making the the plea for um, interim funds until the Marshall Plan can come into effect. So it's not just the Marshall Plan, but the the more broadly these uh, substantial aid packages that played a really important role in facilitating European recovery. But we can't forget that there was also a very strong ideological component um, to the Marshall Plan in this aid.
0: Now, we've discussed uh, Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Minh. And of course, after World War II, France, under with the help of Truman, is able to try to reassert its control in Indochina. But of course, that leads to conflict with the Viet Minh. And how did the war in Indochina, what impact did that have on French policy, politics and American foreign policy towards France.
1: Yeah, so the the United States obviously was already, um, as I mentioned before, an anti colonial uh, power, at least in terms of in terms of rhetoric and tradition, um, and had been willing to deal with the Viet Minh. But as French officials, um, and I would argue through intelligence, increasingly draw this connection between the metropole and the empire, then American perception um, starts to starts to change. So. What's what's interesting is to think about how it how the United States goes from this anti colonialism to by the time that we're talking about it, thinking about subsidizing the war effort and ultimately they would of course assume the burden um, that the um, that the French had uh, undertaken later um, in the nineteen after the French defeat at Dien Bien Phu. What's interesting politically about this is that the French Communist Party had been relatively quiet about the empire. They had supported the rights of the colonized. That is the case that as they did in North Africa, they did the same thing in Indochina. Um, And there were a number of uh, French communist officials who would talk about the right of divorce. In other words, the colonized might have a right to independence from the French union, but it doesn't mean it's a good idea And so they would suggest that there will be this union of the French people and the Algerian people or the French people and the Vietnamese people. And so during this period, the French communists are not out there um, militating to dissolve the French empire. They're relatively quiet. This does start to come to a head in 1947, um, and there is a dispute in the French uh, assembly about military credits to finance the war in Indochina. So war breaks out in Indochina in December of 1946. So by March, there's questions about how to finance the war effort and implement different war plans. And there's a dispute inside of the assembly. And ultimately um, the communists uh, are able to abstain. So it doesn't cause a crisis in the government. That crisis would come in May over wage ceiling. So a domestic issue, and that was where the communists were willing to allow themselves to be expelled, not over a foreign issue. But you can already start to see that it's coming to the fore. Um, by By the fall of 1947, the French communists are very actively talking about um, the empire. And part of this is at the prodding of the Soviets um, through the common form. And so that line starts to harden as the position of the French communist party starts to harden after its expulsion um, from government. So it did it did have an impact on the domestic landscape, but um, you know, of course, the more the French Communist Party advocates for liberation, the more the United States at that point sees it as part of a uh, part of a a smaller struggle that's part of a larger international struggle with communism.
0: So, what, in your view, is kind of the overall legacy of this period for American foreign policy and the role of intelligence uh, in it?
1: So, what's um, Particularly interesting to me is in intelligence history, you know, you will often it, it's it's very enticing to try to find a seminal moment, a seminal intelligence document or a single document that has influenced the Zimmerman telegrams um, of the world. And what's really the case when you look at the traditional diplomatic record alongside the intelligence record is that it's uh, intelligence has an influence in unexpected ways that I don't think that we have fully appreciated. And I would argue the French case is a good exemplar um, of this. And so we can see the role of intelligence in shaping perceptions. And I have argued in my book it's um, it has a cumulative effect. In other words, it's not one document that's, that's the smoking gun. It's the effect of A reinforced narrative over and over and over again, that if you take the time, you can actually trace it as it goes from French sources with their own agendas, through American intelligence, through the embassy, and all the way up to the desk of Roosevelt or Truman. And so um, you have this broader effect, but it also is interesting to see the effects of these sources that have not been appreciated. In other words, it's just an intelligence document. This is what American intelligence is saying. But if you dig really deep and you try to reconstruct the networks and understand the sources themselves, you can trace the influence that they had from the bottom up. And it's another way of them um, expressing agency and showing how French local actors or local actors in the empire were able to shape American perceptions through their liaison, both through unofficial and official exchanges with US intelligence and it's another avenue that we haven't really appreciated because uh, and I can say this as a as a you know historian of US foreign relations there's a um a tendency to look at the official diplomatic record but so much of this was unfolding in unofficial contexts and through this intelligence reporting that we have not fully appreciated and until we do i would argue we can't fully under- understand how perceptions are made and how they ultimately influence the policy of one nation towards another.
0: Yeah, and I think another important uh, point is that intelligence doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's people are shaped by their by their perceptions of the world, by their prejudices, their biases, and also, you know, the context that they live in, uh, in this particular time period or that country and whatnot, because that also played a role in what you said with the OSS agents, why they perceived France and the French people differently than the State Department.
1: Absolutely, and one of the lenses that I have used in this particular history is um, the lens of emotion um, and how fear, uh, senses of betrayal, and these emotional connections can sometimes shape perceptions as well. And you can see with a lot of the intelligence reporting, it's true of diplomatic reporting too, But there is a layer of emotion in there, and for many people, there was a sense of um, whether they had been France watchers for any number of decades and felt betrayed, referring to um, themselves as a jilted lover um, and being disappointed by what was going on in France or whether there was this palpable fear of insurrection that might overtake France and and Western Europe and, and threaten the United States. So it's really important to understand where these people are coming from. And one thing I'll say about the sources, and I mean the sources in the archives, is that intelligence reports from this period, um, unlike today, were often very transparent in terms of who their sources were, in fact, naming them, and even acknowledging some of their background that might have an impact on their agenda or might explain why they're approaching the United States Um uh it, at that time or for a particular issue so putting that back together is really important for understanding the the broader context and motivations of people and you know this is yet another mechanism to to influence um, american policy
0: this has been a very interesting uh discussion do you have any final thoughts uh maybe touch on anything in the book that we didn't get to in the interview
1: well i think my my only final thought here is you know this is a discrete case Um, France in 1944 to 1947, Um, and it's interesting because this is obviously a period of intense interest for U.S. intelligence, and the sources are there to be able to really dig at what was going on, but I would argue one of the things that I'm hoping to achieve with this book um, is that the same dynamics that are true for this case, be it 70, 80 years old at this point, are still true in other, in other more contemporary cases. So the dynamics of the of the intelligence profession, as much as we may talk today about AI and big data and machine learning, there's still very much a human component to it. And there are still under, uh, under or unappreciated ways in which um, the people that we talk to and interact with through those unofficial exchanges do shape perceptions. Of, of our adversaries or of, a, of another power. And so I think that there are some takeaways from this particular case that are still relevant today, which is why I think it's um, a really important way to look at that nexus between intelligence and policy.
0: Now, are there still any sources that still need to be declassified related to this era of, uh, of American foreign policy and intelligence?
1: There are still uh, still quite a few, um, and I am still awaiting FOIA requests, I think from 15 years ago when I uh, first started down this path. So there there are still quite a few, um, but I will say that there is enough out there to have, um, at least for this particular case in this time period, to make a, a good judgment about what it was that was going on. But there's always more. And of course, as we march through time with uh, more contemporary cases, it will be interesting to, to compare You know, uh, those dynamics that are that are perhaps at play, that were at play in the French case and and the same for today.
0: Yeah, we're still uh, debating uh, stuff from the First World War, and it's been well over a century Mm
1: -hmm. later.
0: Uh, We always like to end our interviews by asking our guests, what are you working on now?
1: Oh, thank you uh, for that. One of the things that's come out of this book, as I noted before, is the the difficult relationships sometimes between. Uh, presidents and their intelligence chiefs. And so one of the things that I'm looking at is a um, a study of the relationship between William Donovan, who was the head of the OSS, and Franklin Roosevelt, and doing it through that lens lens of emotion. Um, one of the things I teach in intelligence history course, and as much as I am a proponent of bottom-up Um, history. And I've, I've attempted to use that vantage point here with this book and looking at how this information bubbles up from these sources and ultimately makes its way to the top and influences American policymakers. One of the dynamics in U.S. intelligence history is that the relationship between intelligence officials and the president really does matter. And so this is a um, a particularly interesting case um, that I am uh, looking forward to looking into further. Yes,
0: and related to this book, because I know the OSS worked with the Viet Minh, the French Communist Party, and then even Tito's partisans, I believe, and that, and even Mao in China. So that kind of plays a little bit of a role in that contrast between the OSS and the State Department that we started at at the beginning of our discussion so it's almost like a broadening of that perspective in a way indeed well uh when you finish uh that work uh maybe we can have you back on the podcast
1: i would appreciate that that would be great
0: uh susan perlman uh thank you for joining us on the new books network
1: thank you very much for having me
0: thank you for listening to this episode of the new books network i am your host steven sekevich until next time